So it seems to me, and I think to others, like there's a human tendency to sort of focus on the negative, on the guilt-inducing, on the scurry, and on the painful. Uh, we all know the adage, as they say in the news business, we hear, if it bleeds, it leads. And there's this, there's this draw, I think, to, to some of the, the scurry side of things, the negative side of things in life. And we're going to de- dive into a very, very familiar passage of Scripture today. And I'm willing to bet that if we think through our um, typical response that we've had to this passage, I'll bet that what stands out for us historically is kind of the scurry part. When in truth the passage is dominated by three very, very positive words. Words which are intended by Jesus in this teaching uh, to lead us into joy for our lives and above all the glory of God. So we're going to read the passage together. And what I want you to do, I want you to to just kind of calibrate your heart a little bit. Uh, See what captures you and what causes you to breathe in a little bit. But then I also want you to notice, see if you can figure out the three dominant words that actually are in this passage. Okay, can you, you got that assignment? Okay, monitor what stands out to you and then see and notice uh, the three dominant words. Okay, here we go. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. Here we go. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear very much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, You're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. And such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my command, you'll remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that your joy, my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. If you're my friends, you'll do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my father, I have made known now to you. If you did not choose me, I chose you and I point you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that's going to last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. And this is my command. Love each other. Did you notice the the theme words there? The word fruit, it happens nine times in this passage. This word remain or abide or dwell in, it's in there nine times as well. And the word love and the command to love is in there eight times. But I don't know about you, 
But I think for many of us, what our mind, as we read this passage, what our mind goes through and what, what sort of seizes us and, and, and colors the whole rest of the, of the passage to the point where sometimes I don't even notice it are the words like, cut off, prunes, fire, and burned. It's so easy for that concept and those words to, to ring in our mind and sort of grab a hold of our heart and, and, and almost block our ears and our eyes from seeing what the whole passage is about. When in actual fact, this passage, the whole focus of the passage is this, love, the ultimate fruit of life in God. Love. It's the ultimate fruit of life in God. It is actually love that is the proof of life for life in God. So let's dig in here and I'll show you what I mean. So it starts off with, with the vine and the gardener or the vine and the father. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, if you read your Bible much, in the Old Testament especially, you'll know that the, the, the image of the vine or the image of the vineyard is a very, very common one that's used in the Old Testament scriptures for Israel. Israel is the vine. And as you read it, there are two thoughts that are connected with this. The first thought is that Israel is the vine and God is the gardener and he plants the vine and he plants a vineyard and he builds a wall around the vineyard and all of these things. So that's the first thing is that the vine belongs to God. He plants it, he protects it. But the second thought, I think it's every single time that the image of the vine for Israel is used is that the vine is unfaithful, unruly and unfruitful. So God gives care to the vine, but the vine just rebels against God. And so it's used as a judgment word. And so after coming and saying, Israel, you are my vine. I've tended you all of these different things. Then comes a statement that God is, but you have been unfaithful. You have been unfruitful. You've become unruly. And so here comes punishment. The classical text, if you want to look at it, is Ezekiel chapter 15. You can read it. It's a very short chapter. And a lot of people say that it's Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. It's that prophecy in chapter 15 which lies behind or underneath these words of Jesus. And it's about Israel being the vine, then being unfaithful in various ways, and so judgment is coming. Israel was God's beloved possession, commissioned to bear salvation to the world. That was the point of Israel. But it didn't produce. It became wild. It became self-serving. It became inward-focused and unfruitful. It didn't do what vineyards are supposed to do, which is to bear fruit for the owner. It didn't carry out its mission of being a witness to the world. So Jesus comes and he says, listen. I am the true vine. I am the authentic vine. I am the vine, I'm the one that's going to be the faithful sustainer of life and I'm going to give nourishment and strength and empowerment. In other words, salvation. I'm going to provide salvation to people. I say to Jesus, will bear the fruit that the Father wants. Why? Because I am Israel's Messiah. I am the fulfillment of everything Israel to be. I am the true Israelite. I am the true vine which will fulfill all of the father's expectations, hopes, dreams, and plans. I am the authentic vine. And my father is the gardener. My father is the owner of the vineyard, and he's the one who tends it. And he's got two functions in this passage. The two functions are to cut off the dead branches 
and to prune back to health, or make clean the healthy. That's a plain word, by the way. Cut off and prune and clean. Did you notice that in the verse? They have the same root word. And so in the Greek language, you can see that Jesus is doing a bit of a play on word here. He's, he's intermingling them. He's saying, these are kind of the same thing. It's kind of the same function a little way. So what is it? But he said, my father's going to come and he's going to cut off and burn the withered branches. Now, what does that mean? This word for cut off, it, it kind of literally means to, to lift up and maybe to carry away. And so it is possible, and some of the some of theologians will say what this actually says is, is that the father's job is to first of all to, to, to lift up some of the dead branches. In other words, to get them off, off of the ground where the sunlight and the air can get around them and they can bear fruit again. And, and it, could, it could mean that. That is, a, that is a legit possible interpretation that that's part of the function. But you really have to squint your eyes and twist your head a little bit to get that. Because the context actually kind of shows that ah, it probably doesn't mean that. It probably means this contrast with the healthy vine. It probably does mean to be cut off, carried away, and burned. What this is, is recognition. Carefully now, listen carefully. This is recognition that the branch is no longer connected to the vine. That life has stopped flowing. It's the action which displays the reality that already is. You see this? It's not God killing the branch. It's God saying, listen, this branch is no longer really having the lifeblood of the vine flowing through it. This branch has, has, has cut off the sap. This branch has, has withered itself and is no longer fruitful. And so God is going to make obvious what actually is already in fact. It's going to be cut off, taken away, and burned. But the second thing that this father does is he says he prunes back and makes clean the healthy branches. Now, this sounds negative to us, doesn't it? But it's not in intended to be. Pruning is not a judgment language. Pruning is something that happens when things are going right. It's not, God doesn't prune me. God doesn't prune you. He doesn't prune us when we're being disobedient. God prunes us the cuts back when in fact things are going well and we are doing well and he is wanting to increase health. And what God does by the Spirit is he comes in and he takes away those things which hinder our health, which hinder our spiritual growth, which hinder and stop and, and, and pull back our kingdom fruitfulness. So what are those things that he prunes back? Well, I suppose there's all kinds of things. But there's a couple of things that stand out to me because they sort of are drawn out of this passage. Uh, the first one is selfishness. Well, why does that draw out? Because you see, I don't know much about pruning. I should have, you know, a, I don't know, an arborist or whatever come and talk about this, but, but I read about it, so now I'm an expert. But the deal is with pruning is that they say that what you prune away are those branches which grow in and into itself, which end up just clustering it up, which stop the air and the sunlight getting through other branches. You, you prune those away. You cut, you cut those away. Well, selfishness is turning in on ourselves. And so what God does is says, listen, you're, you're turning in on yourself, Alan. You're turning in on yourself, Church of Christ. You're turning in on yourself. And, and what you're supposed to be doing is opening yourself up for the light of Christ 
and the air of the Spirit and the breeze of the Spirit to blow through you so that you can have life and become more fruitful. So selfishness is something that, an inward focus, is something that God will prune away from our life. And another thing that, that, that God prunes away from our life is pride. And I think this not just because that's one of the struggles that I have, but it kind of grows out of this passage. You see, Sarah Rudin says that, that hubris, hubris is kind of a fancy word for pride. Do you know that word hubris? It means like self-centered pride, right? Hubris is actually a word that comes out of, it, it was a technical term for the excessive leafy growth that saps fruit-bearing plants of their vitality. That's where the word hubris comes from. It's, it's when the, the plants got too leafy and too branchy and, and the fruit was tiny and small and wasn't even there. And that, that was hubris, and so they cut away hubris. And it came to mean pride. God prunes away our pride. So there's all kinds of other things, but those, those are the ones that sort of too, that grew up out of this passage. Well, how does God do it? How does God prune us back? What are the ways in which he does it? Well, I suppose there are many ways, but a few that are in this passage. Number one is he does it by way of his teaching. That's what verse 3 is all about. I've given you my word. And how many times have you gotten into the word of God and been reading the Bible and, and God has shown something, Alan, you know, uh, this needs to be pruned back in your life a little bit because it's going to hinder your growth. And so the teaching of the word of God is, is one of the ways. Sometimes, and I suppose this is the one we think of most often, sometimes it's painful experiences. That we get into a, some expression in our relationship or in our life or in our work or whatever it is and, and, the, and, and something painful happens and we think, ooh, that doesn't feel very good. I'm not going to do that anymore. And so sometimes God uses the painful experiences of our life to cut out of our lives those things which hinder us and hinder the growth. Sometimes, sometimes it's just the quiet whispering of the Spirit in times of prayer. And you're just sort of going along in your prayer life and the Spirit just whispers about something that happened that day or something that happened that week or something that's in your heart. And he just sort of whispers and says, how about we prune that back? How about we don't participate in that anymore? How about you don't do that anymore? Sometimes it's just in that quiet, gentle, whispering the Spirit in times of prayer. Sometimes it's the fellowship. The Apostle Paul commands us to judge each other. Remember he says he's ticked off at the Corinthian church. He says, you should have already judged him, but now I've got to come down there and do it because you're not doing it. And this person's life is messed up. So sometimes, you know, it's somebody that is our brother or sister in Christ, and they just come and they say just a gentle word to me. And Alan, you know, the way you said that, though, that didn't come off right. That didn't portray the grace of Christ. So God uses all kinds of ways to, to, to prune us back and to cut things out of our lives that are not helpful for our growth and for our, for our expansion and for the kingdom. But this whole deal of cutting off and pruning, we tend to get, at least I do, get bogged down in that a little bit. But it's really not the focus of the passage. It's really not the main thrust of what Jesus really wants to get across. Because he goes on and most of the passage talks about how, what it means for him to be the true vine and what it means for us to be the branches. 
And the first thing that he says, one of the most dominant themes that comes along is that, listen, I want you, you need to understand, you need to remain or live or abide or dwell or be infused or be encountered to, connected to the branch. This is, I think, perhaps the critical, maybe even the central point, that we are to remain, we are to abide, we are to stay seamless union with Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we so connect it into Jesus that his lifeblood, that sap that gives life of Christ keeps flowing through our lives? You give us life and cause us to bear fruit. Well, he told us a few things. He said, well, you need to stay in my words. You need to stay in my teaching. You need to do as, as I did. Stay in my word. Get in there. That's how you got clean in the first place. And that's how you stay clean. That's how you stay healthy. It's to be in the words of Christ. Verse 10 says, listen, if you want, to, you want to remain in me, obey my commands. When I teach you something, when I tell you something, when I command you something, live it out. Because as we saw a couple of weeks ago, it's as we live in the commands of Jesus that we get to know God better. You can go back a couple of Sundays and I got Henry Blackby's little outline there about how to do that. You can take a look at that. And she said, listen, if you want to remain in me, remain in my commands. I think it means not to resist pruning, but to embrace it. These challenges to our life, these disappointments that we have, these frustrations we encounter. Jesus invites us to look for the growth opportunities in them. It's hard to do. I know, I know it sounds like I'm just, you know, blowing smoke up here. Because it's hard to do when you're in the middle of it. When you're so disappointed or you're so hurt or you're so afraid or whatever the case may be. But God says, listen, you need to understand that I'm going to use these times to, to, to make you more into the image of Christ. And so as we take these times of, 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 of difficulty, of pruning, we look for the growth opportunity in them. How is it, God, that you're bringing about the kingdom into my heart through this? We were talking about this uh, on, on Thursday, and, and Dave was, was just talking about, you know, the desert at times, those times that feel dry, the times that God seems distant, they're, they're very, very difficult. And we want to avoid them and get out of them. But really, there are times that eventually when we look back, they can become precious to us. Because in our desperate thirst for Christ, we perhaps encounter him in new ways. And so we remain in, in the vine. And when we do, what are some of the results? Well, there's a bunch of results that, that he has in this passage. That If you remain in Christ, what's going to be the difference in our life? Well, there's going to be all kinds of things. First of all, one that catches our attention is, is effective prayer. This is one of the things you may have noticed that as we've gone through this final discourse of Jesus, it kind of keeps coming up again and again that, hey, you know what? If you pray and you ask something in my name, then God is going to answer it. It's in verse 7. It's in verse 16. It's, it's really a bit of a dominant deal here. Now, what in the world does that mean? Because there's all kinds of times I pray for stuff and it doesn't happen. I'm still bald. <laughs> so what, what, what is that? How do we understand this passage well, you need to understand that this is not a blanket promise that whatever it is that we ask, God says, okay, here it is, as he would as if we were a spoiled child. This is where the importance of remaining in Jesus the vine and gaining our life from him and living his commands comes into play. This is where we understand that the point that we are chosen, that we're chosen to bear fruit, and that's the purpose of the vineyard. 
We've got to remember the context that Jesus is speaking in here. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, the prayers that I will answer are those that are connected with you remaining in the vine and bearing kingdom fruit. That's the promise. That if you'll remain in me and you'll know who I am and your prayers align with my personhood and my mission and my character and my eternal plan, of bearing fruit, those prayers I answer. Now, of course, in his grace, lots, God answers lots of prayers that aren't you know, deliberately that way. But it can become so discouraging if we misunderstand this and we think that this is a blanket promise and then it doesn't, it doesn't, it happens to me all the time. I mean, there's people that I pray for every day, every day, and they still get sicker and they still die. And there's marriages that I pray for every day and they still break apart. There's all kinds of these prayers, and how is that? Well, it has to, he's saying, listen, these prayers that I give you to pray, which bring me glory and advance the kingdom in the way that I choose, that you perhaps don't see, those prayers I will answer. That answered prayer is connected to another result of remaining in Christ. Did you notice that he says, I no longer call you slaves. Instead, I call you friend. One of the results of remaining in Christ is that we become a friend of God. That's a phrase of intimacy. That's the idea here is that the living God, the creator of the universe, wants to be intimate with you. But here's the thing. You look at verse 15 there. And we think about the passages in the Bible that talk about being a friend of God from, from Abraham through Moses to Jesus' promise here to be a friend of God means that God tells us and invites us into his purposes, his mission. Look it up, you'll see. And in the passages where he says about Abraham, friend of God, perhaps he talks about Moses, friend, you know, shall I, shall I not reveal to my friend Moses what I'm about to do? To be a friend of God is to know the mission of God, to be invited into the purposes of God, to have God flow through us and be with us. Now, what's interesting, Rick Watts pointed this out, I'd never thought about this before. Maybe he's wrong, I'm still wrestling with it, but I think maybe he's right. He said, you know, if you look in the Bible, you can be called a friend of God. But God has never called your friend. Well, what difference does that make? What Watts is saying is, you need to understand, when we're called a friend of God, he's not saying that it's a buddy-buddy equal relationship. He's saying that God desires intimacy with you and invite you into his mission, invite you into his purposes, invite you into his life, as we saw last week, right up into the, into the, the, the relationship of the Trinity. But we're not equals. Just because we're called friend, not slave, doesn't mean that he isn't God. And we are not his servants. It's not an equal relationship, but it is a relationship of intimacy. Third result of remaining in Christ, which he, Jesus points out here, is in verse 11. You will be infused with God's love. 
Jen uh, gave me a, a translation of the Bible called the Mirror Translation. And, and uh, it's kind of interesting reading along. And, and I love this, how they translate verse 11 here. That as we remain in Christ, we are infused with God's joy. I love that, infusion, right? You know what infusion means? It's like to be just filled up, you know, this infusion thing. To remain in Christ is to have the joy of God in our midst in spite of times that are difficult, in spite of times that are hard, and in the midst of things that are happy, God's joy infuses us. But the main thing that is a result of remaining in Christ is that we bear fruit for the gardener's glory. This, after all, is the purpose of the vineyard. The purpose of a vineyard is not to look pretty. It's not to just, you know, fill up the landscape and the hillsides and not to just give a whole bunch of work. The purpose of the vineyard is, in fact, to bear fruit, to make grapes, to make Wine, the blessing of all of these things as we see in the scripture, as it's described. The fundamental question is then, what is this fruit that God is going to look for? What is this fruit that being remained in Christ is going to bring about in my life? What is this fruit that's going to look for that's going to determine whether I'm alive or dead? Whether he's going to prune me back or whether he's going to cut me off? What is this fruit? Fundamentally, what is it that brings vibrancy to the vine? What is this fruit which proves that I'm dead or alive? The ultimate fruit is the third word, dominant word of the passage. It's love. It's love. Love is proof of life for the Christian. You know, there's measures, right, of proof of life. You know, brain activity, heart working, oxygen in your blood, all those things. You know, when somebody dies, they come and they put a thing, oh, no more oxygen in his heart, he's gone. What's the proof of life? The proof of life for the Christian is God's love flowing through us. That is the ultimate fruit. Now, there's, there's, there's other things involved. I understand that. And, and, and to be honest with you, for many, many years, like it's more on those other things than I thought of. For example, the fruit, it can be the character of God. And in fact, we see that in the Old Testament. Look at Isaiah chapter 5, uh, verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. Remember I said the vineyard, right? Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. And he looked for righteousness, but instead he heard cries of distress. You see, that's part of the character of God, isn't it? Justice and righteousness, and that's the fruit that he was looking for. But you see, the problem is, is that justice has its limits. Because, you know, you can, if somebody, if somebody needs, you know, a little bit of help from you and you can, well, you know, they need 10 bucks, you know, really they need 10 bucks and they won't starve. And so you can say, okay, I'm going to do justice. I'm going to give this guy 10 bucks so he can, you know, have a hamburger. But it's limited, isn't it, to do justly. Love goes much beyond justice. And righteousness, you know, righteousness is a good thing to, to live a life out that's right, that's in right relationship with God and other people. But the problem with righteousness is that it so easily mutates into judgmentalism. Because the more righteous I feel myself, the more danger that there is 
of thinking that other people are not righteous. That love doesn't do that. And, and justice and righteousness is fueled in God by love. And so it could be the, the character of God, and, and, you know, that's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. But as we saw last week, love can be seen as the commanding word there of which all those other words in Galatians are, are describe how that love's lived out. And so it could be the character of God, but love is the core of the character of God's love and undergirds everything. It, it could be, it could be converts. And if you're in the evangelical church, this is kind of, you know, kind of what a little bit gets hammered home to us, isn't it? That what God looks for is, is for us to increase the kingdom, to bring other people into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, and that's the fruit. And boy, uh, we better see some fruit in your life. We better see some people that you brought to Jesus. We better see church, a bunch of baptisms that happen here. Man, you want to talk about guilt and shame and fear and not, not very fruitful and God loves. But what we saw last week on that whole thing of, of reaching out for people is, is that love undergirds and brings about. And you can, we can go and speak all we want, but without love or a clanging symbol. We can lay down our life for other people without love. It's just a waste of time. So love has to undergird the mission too. It's love that is the motivation for the mission. Love is the command that we are to obey. Love is the fruit for which God, the gardener, looks for. Love is the lifeblood of the Christian because Jesus flows his love into us and produces the fruit of love. I remember the first time I realized this. It is absolutely, completely embarrassing. And the reason it's embarrassing is I was sitting in the graduation service, chapel, for my doctor of ministry degrees. And the dude that was preaching had this passage as his text. And he showed there that love is the fruit that is the ultimate fruit God looks for. Talk about slow to be on the uptake. It took me three theological degrees to figure it out. So let me save you quite a few years of study. <laughs> it's love. Love is the proof of life for the Christian. The love of God made available to all people as a grape on the vine. Love is the purpose of the vineyard. God's love that all of us together make available to all people. Love is the ultimate fruit. And love flowing through us, verse 8 tells us, is what brings God to glory. And love flowing through us, verse 11 says, is what's going to bring you joy in your life. Love. The ultimate fruit. The ultimate proof of life. For each one of us, for which God searches. Almighty God, keep us rooted in the vine and bearing the fruit of love.
Amen.